before the show, Wu-Tang is performing. So I'm just kind of off in the crowd looking at the show. And it's this dude in a wheelchair in the front of the crowd. So I go up to him. I say, hey, man, y'all might want to move back because when we perform, we're going to be spraying beer out here. They say, we don't spray no beer over here, man. Okay, show starts. We spray beer on everybody, right? Including them. Here it comes! Here it comes! You're listening to Fresh Era, where we tell stories of the legends from the golden era of hip-hop. Each episode, we bring you stories from the pioneers themselves as we dive deep into their lives, their struggles, and what it was like to be a part of the most popular form of music before it was mainstream. I'm your host, Craig Smith. Today, we take a journey through the life of J-Ro from the rap trio, The Alcoholics. Their name says it all, really. They were a fun-loving, energetic rap group with close ties to King T and introduced the world to Exhibit. Their music was sure to turn up the party and their live performances would leave the crowd literally soaked in alcohol. It's a story filled with a lot of hard work and rejection and ultimately pays off. J-Ro, one of the three members of the Alcoholics with Tash and rapper-producer E. Swift, grew up fairly modest on the West Coast. He was born James Robinson on June 17, 1969. I grew up in a city called Pacoima, California. Pacoima, the only city of its name, is now a neighborhood in the San Fernando Valley. After World War II, thousands of black families landed in the valley during the second wave of the Great Migration from the South. Discriminatory covenants written into deeds excluded black people from buying houses in most neighborhoods around the U.S., so they found homes in concentrated areas with other black people. In the 60s and early 70s, almost all of the black people in the valley, including J. Rowe's parents, lived in Pacoima. DJ Quick said Pacoima was just like Compton, you know, it's a pretty rough area. I was pretty much just raised by my mom. My dad, he was around. I used to go um, stay with him in the summers. And for a time, his mother and father both worked at Lockheed Martin Aeronautics, where they built all types of aircraft. For his dad, this came with a kind of bonus as they would get creative with some of the aircraft scraps. He was actually one of the first people doing hydraulics in whole Los Angeles. And they used to get the old hydraulics that you know they used to throw away. So they were taking those and putting them in the car you know, low riding pretty much started in the valley. And they wouldn't just ride low to the ground. With the equipment they got from the plant, they figured out how to adjust the height whenever with the flip of a switch. People that were working at GM and working at Lockheed were, were taking the cars and they would drive out to L.A. and get in fights with the low riders who were just, you know, low. <laughs> it wasn't moving up and down. I almost ran him over one day. He was under the car fixing it, and, I, and I, his friend taught me how to shift the gear, and I put it in neutral and almost ran him over. He developed a love for cars and car culture watching his father's hobby take shape, but that was hardly the family business. Like many black families, he was raised in and around the church. I come from a family of preachers, and like my dad's side was like Catholic. My mom's side is African Methodist Episcopal. But cars and church didn't nearly keep him as entertained as what the kids were doing. As a kid in the valley during the 70s, he had a front row seat to niche activities that would eventually become mainstream. Skateboarding started in the valley. BMX, bikes, all that life is valley life. 
we didn't have a beach. Everybody else was surfing, going to the beach, surfing, doing all this stuff, boogie boarding. We stuck in the valley. <laughs> like, And his family could see early signs of him becoming a performer. I used to always like imitate people like Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder, stuff like that when I was youngster. During the holidays, you know, grandpa bring out the camera and I'm entertaining everybody. You know, I was that kid. So I'm entertaining the whole family. They just expecting it. Or what you gonna do this time, you know? The late 70s was full of great entertainment, leaving a lot for him to imitate. But the music that he wanted to hear wasn't as available to him yet. I remember being in a car a lot, listening to the radio. It, it was pretty much the popular station, you know, and they played everything. And you would be like amped to hear Michael Jackson every now and then, or maybe Rick James or something. Like all the soul music and funk and all that, that was at home. And this was the life he knew. In elementary school, he was a kid with lots of ideas and energy. And up until that point, it looked like that energy was going to get him in trouble. That is, until he was given something to focus on. I got in trouble for mouthing off to the teacher and, you know, not really obeying the rules. So she sent me home. I used to have to walk to school two miles every day, you know, back and forth. My mom was at work. I used to come home by myself, you know, and there were neighbors who would look after me. She got home. My stomach is butterflying up, all that. I'm like, I'm about to get it, you know. She had a record under her arm, and it was Rapper's Delight. She was like, I want you to go play this record, memorize it, and write down all the words to it by tomorrow morning, or I'm whooping your ass. Okay, I played the record. I was like, what is this? They're not even singing. They just talking and stuff. I don't know how you spell hip hippity hop, right? She like, hey, make it happen. So by the next morning, I knew all the words to Rapper's Delight. And the record Actually, it said DJ promotional copy on it, so it wasn't even out yet. So by the time the record came out, I knew all the words to it, and everybody thought I was a rapper in my school. But rap at that point wasn't really a thing. I remember in class one time, I said to the teacher I was going to be a rapper, and everybody started laughing. They laughed because hip-hop, and specifically the rapping part of it, wasn't something you could base a When I Grow Up project on. It was just seen as a fad. At the time, it was just pretty much Sugar Hill Gang. Grandmaster Flash. Push me. Curtis Blow hit the scene. Well, these are the breaks. But it was more like grown-up music to me. The rappers looked grown. So as a teenager, he knew he liked it, but didn't see himself as someone who could participate. Nevertheless, he found a way to express himself through breakdancing. My name was Baby Fresh at the time, but I was a b-boy. I was breakdancing, popping. And breakdancing was his first hip-hop outlet, but that would soon be overshadowed by rhyming. I grew up with um, my godbrother, William Von Brock. 
We used to call him Suave D. We pretty much just grew up together as brothers because my mom and his mom only had one child each. So I would go stay at his house, come stay at my house, all that. We were writing poetry because, you know, we was just getting into girls and all that. So we learning how to write poetry and all this. So one summer, he went to visit his dad in New York in the Bronx. He comes back. He's telling me all these crazy stories, how they going out getting hubcaps and how the dudes smoke weed and cigars. Cause he has some older cousins and they were rapping at the time and they showed him how to rap. So he passed that info on. He's showing me, he, we get out a pen and a pad. Needless to say, he was intrigued. This opened up a whole new world of possibilities. But breakdancing and rhyming were still just fun means of self-expression. It wasn't until MC Shan, The Bridge, when I really wanted to be a rapper. He loved to hear the story again and again of how it all got started way back when. He looked young. He was rapping about something I could rap about. And that example created a new path for him. That was what the time was. I was a youngster, 13 years old, b-boying. Then I started rapping, you know, like a lot of people my age did. And with that, all he needed to do was come up with a suitable rap name. I had a Run DMC cassette tape, and I'm looking on it, and it say they real names. So I see Joseph Simmons, okay? That's Ron, Daryl McDaniels, DMC. Oh, that's what DMC mean. How would my name come out if I did that? J-R-O, J-R-O, boom. My friends and family were pretty much supportive at the time because it wasn't a lot of people doing it. So I was the only one who could rap in my whole area. So I would come home and be out in the middle of the street with a people all around me. I remember we did a wedding reception once. They wanted to see us come rap. I remember me and Suave D rapping in church at the Christmas program. We did this whole rap play, we rehearsed. It was irritating to them, I'm sure, you know what I'm saying? But they liked seeing it in situations like that. And this was only the beginning. Very soon, J-Ro would be connected with MCs and DJs who would take his craft to the next level and open doors for him that no one could deny nor laugh at. After the break, J-Ro goes all in on his dream and helps launch the career of West Coast legend King T. Then, the rise of the alcoholics and the crazy ride that took them all around the world. Hey, Chub Rock here. Thanks for tuning in to Fresh Era. Did you know that the guys over at Stupid Fly are doing this strictly out of love for 90s hip-hop culture? They may make it sound easy, but tons of time and money was spent on creating, writing, mixing these episodes. If you like what you hear, please do me a favor. Go to stupid-fly.com and pick up some merch to show your support. Then follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Stupid Fly Media. Come and be part of our community of golden era gladiators. Once again, that's stupid-fly.com. Now head over there and treat them right. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite Clear Liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. 
Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Listen, nobody cares when the War of 1812 was fought or how many states there are in the U.S. We all know that there are 52, I think. What we really care about is which famous gangster rapper actually started as a backup dancer or how many ladies per capita love Cool James. This is Magic Most, host of the new classic hip-hop gamecast, Headspin, brought to you by Stupid Fly. Our first show launches on Wednesday, June 30th, but you can subscribe today. Headspin, the world's first and greatest golden era hip-hop gamecast. As a kid in the Valley of Los Angeles during the 80s, J-Ro fell headfirst into hip-hop, becoming a b-boy and then learning how to rap. He was the neighborhood MC, and he had begun experimenting with recording songs in a four-track recorder at his house. He and his godbrother Suave D started to take hip-hop serious enough that they decided to formalize their bond into a crew. They called themselves Total Control. And there's no use being an MC in a crew at that time without the gear to display it. As fate would have it, Pacoima in the summer of 85 was home to a place that did just that. My cousin Anita, she's driving me down to this clothing store that everyone was calling the Fila Shop, right? It was actually called J&D's, but it was owned by um, Scotty D. Scotty D was an entrepreneur who opened a store with his brother, and according to him, they were the first to do custom urban apparel in the nation even before Dapper Dan, the perfect spot for aspiring rappers like J-Ro. I walk in there and uh, I want to get this red Elise short set suit, like, you know what I mean? And I tell him, put James J-Ro Robinson on it. He said, what's J-Ro? I'm like, that's my rap name. He like, you rap? Let me hear something. I was a little cocky then. I'm like, nah. So my cousin, she hits me in my back, boom. You better rap. Go ahead and bust. All right, so I'll just bust something for him. He like, damn. Hey, man, come back here Saturday. My boy DJ Pooh is coming down here with his turntables. I want him to hear you. DJ Pooh was a local DJ at the time, but would go on to work with Tupac. LL Cool J, and Snoop Dogg. I'm sure you'll remember him from his guest starring role in Ice Cube's classic film, Friday, which he also co-wrote and produced. Man, my grandmama gave me that chain. DJ Poole is there, bring his turntables in the back room. I'm back there rapping all day. You know, I'll bring Suave D up there. The Fila Shop was a staple in hip-hop culture all throughout L.A. Not only could you get exclusive gear, you would be in the mix with other movers and shakers, and J-Row was there all the time. I met Dub C there, Coolio, Houdini used to come through there. I used to drive back and forth to Compton, picking up Pooh and taking him home, you know, all hours of the night. And then one day we were up there and this kid just walks up with a sweatsuit on and a Kango and like, yo, he's a B-boy, you know, what's up? Oh, I'm T. T. This kid, T. T. was future West Coast hip-hop pioneer King T. King T. Who would go on to inspire a generation of rappers, including a young, notorious B.I.G. But at this point in rap history, he was just a kid. And when he walked into the Fila shop, he was boasting about his skills. I've been out in Houston DJing on the radio. Man, what? You 15 years old? You ain't been DJing on no radio. Took him right in the back. Kills it. So we we grouped up. We used to have sweatsuits that said total on the arm sleeve and 
control on the leg. And for the next couple of summers, you could catch them all around L.A. Going out winning rap contests at World on Wheels. and Eventually, Tila T got on the mic. So he would just come out, bust one song, and then me and Suave D were like the main act, right? And Pooh was the DJ. Then they took their act on the road. So we rolled up to Oakland with this shows with Ice T, Dana Dane, Real Roxanne. Like, this was my first taste of, I, I, I signed autographs when we went to Oakland. First time I ever signed an autograph. Yeah, I was like 16. But there was a bit of a learning curve when it came to rapping on stage. You had to always keep your bases covered because you never knew who would be in the crowd. Young King T would learn this lesson the hard way. But we doing this show and he started busting this rap, right? We was like, that's dope. We get back to LA, he he got up on stage busting his part and he goes off. So then we come out, we, we just start doing our songs. But I look to the left while we're performing and it's these dudes surrounding King T. Now at this time, he's a little dude. He's like super skinny, right? So he got all these dudes around, big old dudes, look like they from New York and stuff. So we're rapping on the stage, but I'm looking, corner my eye, make sure everything cool. I see it's cool. Then we finish, and when we get off stage, he come up to us. He's like, man, you know who that was? Like, who? He said, that was Whip or Whip from Cold Crush. Like, what? Yeah, man, I got to tell y'all something. <laughs> He was reciting Whip or Whip's raps from Wild Style. See, I hadn't seen that movie yet, you know, but he had. And he was changed some of the words around. And Whip or Whip was in the building. But he was, like, giving them props just for knowing it. Like, damn, man, that was dope, you know. You just might want to start writing your own shit, though. King T would start writing his own rhymes that kept him going when they got back to L.A. King T would come over my crib, and um, we'd do these little stupid songs, man, just clowning around. And they took those songs that they made for fun to the Fila shop. Scotty heard it. DJ Pooh heard it. He took it to DJ Unknown. Unknown took it to Ice-T. I think he had a record deal on, like, the next two weeks. This was amazing. It was a sign that they weren't doing this just to be doing it. Then, King T gets to work, and J-Ro is right there in the thick of it. He was actually my DJ for a short time. Went from him being my DJ to me being his hype man, you know what I mean? So it was all excitement for me, like shooting videos, doing shows, like hearing the songs on the radio and stuff like that was, it was amazing. And then, the crew gets another stroke of good fortune. DJ Pooh hooks up with L.A. Posse, goes to New York to work on LL Cool J's album, Bigger and Death. Right, I'm still in high school playing football. Think I'm going to NFL or something. I'm like, I'm gonna hold back. Everybody else doing their thing. But hip hop found him. Before long, he was introduced to another DJ who would inspire him to keep going strong. So one of my boys was like, yo, I know this dude named E. Swift. He got turntables. Took me over there. We just kicked it for a while. He told me how he's like moved out from Ohio and he loved funk music. It was done deal right there that night. It was one of those moments when you meet someone and you know you'll be friends forever. I was coming over there all the time and he already knew Tash, who also was from Ohio, but they met in California. So he would come over. We was just hanging out, man, going, playing basketball, getting drunk, going to parties, going to San Fernando Valley house parties back in those days. Amazing. 
We didn't know we were going to group up or none of that stuff. They were just partying and hanging out because they connected. So I started doing some demos with E-Swift. Then Tash started doing some demos. He was like kind of more like just had started rapping at this time, but he was dope. He had like three dope raps. So they was tripping off the fact that I knew King T and stuff, you know? So he started to bring his new friends around King T and- E-Swift was actually cutting hair at first, giving all of us fades and stuff, cutting everybody. And then one day, King T was about to go out on tour. DJ Aladdin was his DJ at this time. Night before they're supposed to go, DJ Aladdin gets in a car wreck breaks both his legs, can't go on the tour. So I'm telling King T, yo, you know E. Swift can, is a DJ too, right? What? He can DJ? Let me see. All right, boom, on tour. So E. Swift gets to go out and rock crowds with King T, who at the time was signed to Capitol Records and had released his debut album, Act a Fool, which charted on Billboard Top 200. This was great because E. Swift was soaking up this experience as a DJ and it would come in handy for him J-Ro and Tash. We were a group called ESP at the time, Everyday Street Poets. I know what you're thinking. This group is so funky that I'm stinking. ESP is a little funkism. Red, black, and green on the colors of my pillow. They had attracted the attention of AM Records, known for putting out acts like Sting and Janet Jackson. They signed a development deal with them and got to work, but it just wasn't really happening. We were going through the system, then they fired the staff, and we just got lost in that, and it was just exhausted. We were exhausted. Because while they were on AM, they actually recorded an album and were ready to go. This was a loss and left them sort of defeated. So they moved on. Tash moved back to Ohio. I just got a job, a security guard at a bank. I had a, my first kid, you know. So I'm just like, Psh, it's done, you know. Not even tripping. It looked like this thing he had worked hard to achieve, making it as a rapper, just might not happen. Then suddenly, it just happened. I had these demos floating around that I was doing um, after Tash left. So I was just like, I'm going to do some solo stuff. King T heard one of the songs, I Got It Bad, and was like, I want to use this for my album. By this time in 1992, King T was still rocking and working on his third studio album with Capitol Records. Okay, so Swift got on it. He got on it. I get the place jumping like a cricket when I kick shit. I'm from the West Coast, but don't sleep close. I got it bad, y'all. I got it bad, y'all. When it comes to the pen and the pad, y'all. And next thing you know, it's the first single for his album. Like, trifling album. What? The first single? Y'all want to use that? That's just my demo. Like, I Got It Bad Y'all was released in November of 92 ahead of King T's The Trifling Album, which would again land King T on the charts. But the single didn't say featuring everyday street poets. King T had given them another name. The Alcoholics. Everybody's like, who's the Alcoholics? Swift and myself were at King T's house in Hollywood. I'll never forget, we used to get these real cold 40s down the street liquor store. Tash is actually locked up in Ohio. King T just sitting there like, you know, Ice Cube got the lynch mob. I need to have a crew. So he's like, y'all gotta be called the alcoholics though. Cause he was doing ass for St. Eyes. He was known for being drunk. We all was known for being drunk all the time. So we were like, cool, let's do it. But who's gonna be the other rapper? I was just saying, I gotta have Tash. 
He's the dopest, man. But he was in some trouble at the time. Here's Tash in an interview from 1994. Unfortunately, I was... Uh... On a vacation. I was incarcerated. So they decided to pay his bail in. Flew him back. That's why he's not on I Got It Bad, but he's in the video. I remember that first, the first show at the DNA Lounge in San Francisco, and we opened up for Ultra Magnetic MCs. And uh, we rocked it, man. It was an amazing show, too. We were spraying 40 ounces on the crowd. That's crazy. In fact, the Alcoholics became a hit, not just for their appearance on King T's album, but because of their legendary performances. After this show, spraying alcohol on the crowd will become a calling card. And not everybody would appreciate this, including legendary producer MC Q-Tip. When we come back, we'll tell you how J-Ro and the Alcoholics take their party to the next level and make their mark in hip hop. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch. Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. <laughs> Let me clear my throat. I am the legendary DJ Cool, and I'm here to tell you about a new stupid fly podcast I'm on called Headspin, the classic hip-hop trivia gamecast. Headspin! Come listen as two golden era gladiators compete head-to-head to see who will be victorious in their knowledge of completely useless hip-hop trivia. The winner will go home with cold hard cash, while the loser will be forced to spin the dreaded hip-hop wheel of consequences. Headspin premieres June 30th with new episodes every Wednesday after. Make sure to subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you get your podcasts and follow at Headspin Game Show to get in on the action. Headspin, the only classic hip-hop game cast. Headspin! Welcome back. J-Ro and his friends Tash and E-Swift had signed with a record label only to be tragically dropped without a set. They picked up normal jobs and took some time away from rap until King T gave them the spotlight and dubbed them the Alcoholics. Things looked like they were on the right track, but in the meantime... Like I said, I was working as a security guard at a bank. Remember, he's got a family to support. So one day, um, I'm up at my job. And the car pulls up. Suave D was driving. Tash and Swift in the car with him. When I'm standing there in my uniform, they're like, man, they want to sign us. I'm like, what? Yeah, Loud Records, they going, they want to sign us. I'm like, yeah, like, what? they like, no, now. 
They sitting there with weed in the car, smoking, clowning me, laughing, and I'm standing there. Look, right. Look left. They see me sis, man. I was out of there. We get up there, they got some 40 ounces in the ice bucket. Steve Rifkin and all the cats is up there, right? That's when Steve Rifkin, founder of Loud Records, offered the Alcoholics a record deal. Loud Records at the time was an upstart with two other artists, Madcap and Chicago rapper Twista. They didn't have a staff or nothing like that. It was good times, man, because it was just us and Steve Rich Isaacson, you know, the top guys. It was just us and them. And Loud Records wasted no time. They just threw us in the studio, man. And the mission was to create a studio album that encompassed the youthful, exciting, and fun lifestyle that they lived and that the fans loved at their shows. It's worth mentioning that since they grew up in rough areas, they could have gone the route of making gangster rap records. But instead, they chose to make fun records about drinking and partying few of the songs we had already. Make room. The alcohol the crew, and what we're here to do is rock a show, knock a hole, and crack another brew. Make room Mary Jane. Mary, Mary, Mary Jane. Mary Jane, Mary Jane. Check it out. Only when I'm drunk. Damn, I'm drunk. I need a chunk. No better yet a hunk of that funk. When I get drunk, I might act uncouth. But when I get drunk, I always tell the truth, yeah. That's the only song I wasn't drunk. I was a drunk on the original version, for sure. But it was over a different track, and we couldn't clear the sample. So I was straight up acting, you know. I hope that don't hurt nobody's fantasy about what was happening that day. But uh, yeah, all the other songs, Gone. Like, I don't know how I did them, you know? The alcoholics were in the studio creating and kicking it with the same energy that they had before the deal was loud. And in August of 1993, they released their debut album, 21 and Over, which would hit Billboard 200. And with that, they were in motion. The, the label would send us out and we would just do these, go to the record store during the day, go do a performance that night, go to the next city. And shortly after the album was released, they got a chance to take their live show to the next level. Our first main tour was with Tribe Called Quest in De La Soul in 1994. And it was clear they were in unfamiliar territory. They both had tour buses. We had a Cadillac. <laughs> a Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul taught them how to manage themselves on tour and how to rock huge crowds. But they didn't take that and imitate. They took it and innovated. And that put them on slippery territory with Q-Tip. We used to spray beer on the crowd, and we kept wetting up the stage. And one show, we messed up a monitor. Then we hear that Q-Tip ain't feeling this, you know, like he sends a message for us to stop, whatever. So the next show, we do the same thing. Stage is all wet. So after the show, I remember I got hungry, and I went to a thing like Waffle House. We in the South somewhere in Virginia or something. So I'm walking to Waffle House and I see Q-Tip coming. And, uh, you know, so I'm seeing, we ain't really spoke since we've been on the tour or nothing. I'm walking to the Waffle House and we kind of like meet right at the front door. And he look at me and go, sup, nigga? And I'm just like, that shocked the shit out of me already. That is fucking Q-Tip. Like, what? What you want to eat? 
He wasn't even tripping. Like, oh, come on, man. We had a good old talk, man. He was just the coolest dude, you know what I'm saying? The fun didn't stop there. They made it all around the country. Then they made it to Europe, where they were exposed to new fans and experienced another side of touring. But while they were on the road, J-Ro didn't blow money and live records. At this point, he was a family man with kids back home, and the road took him away from that life. It was tough, you know, because I was just, I was like, taking them to school every morning type of pop. So to this day, I was like, I barely missed the practice. And I don't know to this day how I did that. You know, a lot of people, they're like, I didn't used to see you around too much, you know. And when they did, I would be with my boys. With his priorities in order and a successful album out, he and the Alcoholics were sent out on the road with an up-and-coming rap group that had just signed with Steve Rifkin at Loud Records, the Wu-Tang Clan. I just remember, like, we would all go out and eat together, you know, and I was really tripping off how different we were, them being from the East, like, they wouldn't even eat off a grill that would pork was cooked on. <laughs> they like, yo, what you cook on that grill? I don't know, we just became brothers and a few situations came where we really had to have each other's backs. And they would see that camaraderie firsthand. We were in Virginia one time before the show, Wu-Tang is performing. So I'm just kind of off in the crowd looking at the show. And it's this dude in a wheelchair in the front of the crowd. So I go up to him, I say, hey man, y'all might want to move back because when we perform, we're going to be spraying beer out here. And they say, we don't spray no beer over here, man. So I'm like, okay, these are some gangsters over here now. But look, man, we spray beer as part of our show. Y'all just, just move to the side. We stand right here. Whoa, 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 don't spray no beer on us. Okay, show starts, we spray beer on everybody, right? Including them. So I see them like getting mad. Couple of they cats go back, grab bottles. They standing there and we on stage and I'm looking at all this. We, we looking, we see them, we see what's happening. You know, we, this is about to go down. And I see we, the brothers from Wolf gathering up, you know, gathering up. Uh, like, what's up? Like, it's about to go down. So we, we rocking the house, though. Place start jumping. They start blowing the bottles, like, putting them in the air. Like, whoa, that's my shit. My God. So, you know, nothing happened. But I remember coming back there another time, and we're in the mall. I'm, we're walking through the mall, see the dude in the wheelchair. What's up, bro? Hey, what up, bro? Like, hey, man, what's up with y'all? Y'all was rocking, man. He said, but next time, spray some champagne or something. We went home smelling like beer. <laughs> the party didn't stop as they continued to tour the country performing songs from 21 and over. But at a certain point, Loud Records needed them to do something difficult, a follow-up album. The first album was 10 songs straight up. And like three or four of them was already, you know, demoed out. So this album was more like, let's show them what we really got. And just being, traveling so much, coast to coast was the only thing we could really, <laughs> that was the only thing on our minds. And this time, they enlisted help from a producer rapper who was well in his prime at this point. Diamond D. You see, I skipped to my loo like Napoleon at Waterloo. My name is Diamond D. Tell you what I'm going to do. I remember flying out to New York 
He picked us up in a Camry with boom wind sounds in it. And we, he drove us all around the Bronx playing beats. Took us to this one corner, Cold Crush Brothers standing there. I'm not even joking, man. Like, what do they just stand here every day? Takes us by Kid Capri's crib, down in the basement. He gave us a cassette of some beats. We were supposed to get one track from it. But they ended up with not only the track for their song, Let It All Out. So all aboard the J-Roll train, the folky town. Express from the west, so it's best that I clown. Let it all out, let it all out. But they also got the track for their single, The Next Level, featuring Diamond D. We wanted to put out a dope album and uh, get back on the road. <laughs> I think that by that time, we just were hooked on the road. If you listen to a lot of our songs, it's a lot of call and response, getting the crowd involved. Because we felt that that was going to be our thing. We're just, we're a party group. So while we on stage, the crowd got to be with us, not just watching us perform, watching us rap. So that, that was, you know, a big part of the album. And that strategy was successful. Coast to Coast, the Alcoholics' sophomore album actually beat their chart position with their debut album and ensured they'd be able to tour and connect with the fans. They brought the party wherever they went, and you knew you were in for a booze-filled good time when the Alcoholics showed up. And when it came to partying, J-Row and the Alcoholics lived up to their name in their own way. For me, it was just a, a social thing. You know, I'm if I'm out with people, I'm about to drink everybody under the table, though. So I kind of felt like we was the responsible ones. And we, we're the crew that drinks the less on the, on, the, on this tour, man. Everybody else drink way more than us. Alcoholics drink less. I can't believe it. I mean, we drink a lot, man, but damn. No. <laughs> we're the responsible alcoholics who are going to give you some information you might need to hear about being drunk. Don't do this when you're drunk or do this or that. So, you know, we probably helped a lot of people <laughs> probably hurt some people too you know um but you know that that was just our our expression at the time we're we're the alcoholics so we gotta give it to them you know the alcoholics would go on to release three more studio albums and continue touring into the 2000s they eventually toured with everyone from exhibit to the notorious big it's a true success story in that j Row had come from a working class upbringing in Pacoima, California, and ended up a fixture in hip-hop history, not just on the West Coast, but around the world. The ride was the funnest part, you know? Even going back to Total Control, Fila Shop, you know, shootouts. Because there was a time hip-hop was only in the ghetto, you know? So it was just like dangerous parties all the time. We used to make all these decisions before we left the house, like, what should I wear? Who's riding in the car? What area is it in? This and that. We thinking of all this stuff, <laughs> you know, just so we can make it home. And through all that, they created a way out. You know, showing people that, you know, even in bad situations or whatever, you can have fun and turn it into a, a fun situation, you know, because we have something to work with. Alcohol, we can always make a song about alcohol. When all else fails, just make another song about alcohol. We So it was cool to have something, you know. Our thing wasn't guns or selling weed or whatever. It was just, you know, having fun drinking. 
partying. J-Row and the alcoholics remain tight to this day. These days, they've taken their platform to the cannabis industry with their brand, Smokeaholics, based out of California. Fresh Era is a stupid fly production, written and edited by me, Craig Smith, and made great by the amazing DJ Cheap Shot. Chris Barnett is an I-dotting T-crossing ninja. Sean Berman is our mix engineer. Art design by Michael Bonanno. Our music is by The Math Club. Be sure to follow us on social media, at Stupid Fly Media. And all of our day ones can head over to stupid-fly.com, where you can buy Stupid Fly merch and learn more about us. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or however you listen. And make sure you tune in to the next episode of Fresh Era.